In today's episode, we're going over how important is run technique and when to change it with special guest, Chris Johnson. Let's do it. First and foremost, thank you. Thank you so much for your support. You truly allow me to do what I love for a living. My name is Dan Pope. I'm a physical therapist, coach, personal trainer, and meathead. I love all things fitness. This is the Fitness Pain-Free Show, where we help coaches and physical therapists like you get your patients and clients out of pain and back to training in the gym where they belong. If you're watching this on YouTube, help me out by hitting that like button, comment, and subscribe to the channel. If you're listening to this via podcast, leave me a positive rating and review. It helps a ton. Thanks, and let's get rolling. If you want to support me that extra step further, consider subscribing to Fitness Pain-Free Insiders. It's a comprehensive educational resource and toolkit for the fitness and rehab professional. Think Netflix, but for trainers and physical therapists. People ask me all the time, what's the next step I can take with you, Dan, to learn more? Well, this is it. It is premier content from myself. I've been making this for the past five plus years or so. Uh, we've got 100 plus webinars, ebooks, complete guides. I update this once a month. Like I said, you have access to a private Facebook group. Have all your questions answered by me. You can decide upcoming podcast topics and you can get started for just $1. After that, it's $12.99 per month. It's nice and cheap. You can cancel anytime. So head over to fitnesspainfree.com, click on the programs link, and then click on Fitness Pain-Free Insiders Online Library. I'll also leave a link in the show notes so you can check it out. I want to talk about running technique. And what's kind of interesting to me is that we just went through these kind of pillars of preventing injury, right? And potentially how people get hurt. And you didn't mention, you know, forefoot striking, rear foot striking. You didn't mention the shoes you wear, right? You didn't mention the, the big things that I think our society thinks of, right, when it comes to getting hurt. Um, how important is running technique? And then we'll go down the, um, the whole rabbit hole of when do you actually try to change it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that, um, we, we all have our own running signature, you know, and that's driven by a lot of factors, you know, um, and I should preface this by saying like, all it takes is for like, I, I learned this firsthand where I've been at you know, training practice, uh, or in a, in a triathlon or a road race and someone passes you and you're like, that person has the shittiest, you know, from a qualitative standpoint running for, him. but you can't, you can't deny the fact that they just passed you and they're running faster. So all you have to conclude in that situation is, geez, well, that running form seems to work very well for that person because I was running fast and they just passed me. So I think we see a lot of things that we think are problematic and people try to tweak them in that in almost all cases, it does more harm than good. You know, when you see people with a whip, that's probably driven by their, their hip architecture or something going on in their leg. So you know, I, I think that my instinct is never to to try and tweak someone's form. There are a couple caveats um, because I really believe in self-optimization. The more someone can enjoy consistent training over a long period of time, our bodies are not dumb. You know, do any task that you haven't done before. And as you like I was helping pack up some boxes with my father-in-law yesterday. And at first it's like we were fumbling the like, you know, wrap up these frames with bubble wrap. You know, we had this tape dispenser and we had these packing or shipping boxes. And after we did it three to four times, all of a sudden we got the system down. We just started cranking it out. The same goes for any task, you know, except swimming, you know, swimming's tricky, but 
no, I say that jokingly, but if someone runs consistently and they're able to enjoy it without really getting injured, they're going to self-optimize. We see this in, you know, kids who go from high school to college where, you know, they start to up their cadence a little bit. Um, so don't think to necessarily tinker with someone's running form, even though it may look a little bit wonky to you. Now, if someone has something like chronic exertional compartment syndrome, um, you know, say if they have medial, uh, medial joint uh, compartment arthritis um, of the knee, there are some cases to be made to tinker with someone's strike pattern. You know, so um, there's a study from Bowersock et al., you know, and they showed basically if someone has medial knee OA, that that's a case where if you're trying to reduce the forces there and stave off a, you know, a unilateral compartment replacement that you would probably want to get them to a four foot strike. Um, let's say mid to four foot, you know, but you also have to make sure that person has a tissue conditioning because we're probably dealing with an aging athlete or a masters, if not Jerry athlete at that standpoint, who we know has lost, lost calf capacity. So we're trying to challenge them to adopt a four foot strike, yet they have this fleeting calf capacity and, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul, you have to be careful. You may promote a four foot strike and boom, they tear their calf. Oh, bad decision. You know? So I think generally speaking, don't think to tweak someone's running form, expose them to variable running environments um, and, and just challenge them to, to become more robust. Um, so I see so many triathlon coaches that are trying to promote four foot striking and they always seem to do more harm than good. And most of the time, just taking these people back and strike is a little bit of a red herring too. I mean, it depends on a number of factors. How fast are you running? How fatigued are you? Are you running uphill? Are you running downhill? Um, so I think that people take a, a very reductionist approach to this. And because they can make money through treadmill analysis, um, it's sort of stepped, it, it's becoming a little bit more in the limelight. For sure. So generally speaking, people can kind of optimize with a variety of different running strategies. And the other part that's really important, and I, I tell people this all the time, it's like you just spent 15, 20 years optimizing a certain way to run. If we yeah. change that, like you said, maybe we reduce some stress in one area, but we're throwing it somewhere else. And that area yeah. does not have 15 to 20 years of capacity built up, right? 100%. So it sounds like if you do change running technique, you have to have a good reason for it. There's risk in doing that. It's not going to be one of those benign things, right? It's almost like a last ditch effort. And you probably have to prepare that person for that new running strategy, especially if it's more from a, a rear foot strike to a four foot strike in an aging individual. So that clinical reasoning has to take into account, right? This is an older individual. They don't have that same calf strength and we're going to completely change the way they run at this point. A lot of risk there. Um, is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. And I would say, you know, with, with gate retraining, you know, if I'm tinkering with anything, it's probably step rate. Um, you know, if I see someone who's having lower extremity complaints, um, you know, in their, say in the, you know, Lace Ludke's work has talked about 166. You have to be careful. That's in high school athletes. But, um, you know, I, I, 
if someone's in the low to mid 160, let's say 165 and below, um, and they're tolerant of running, but it's like they're getting a little bit of pushback. You know, if we think of patellofemoral pain, um, well, pull the step rate lever, but you don't need to do that long term. I think it's something that you do transiently to help them continue running so they don't lose capacity um, where they can continue to trust in their body. And a lot of the times they're like, wow, that that actually makes my knee feel significantly better. Um, so they get buy in too, and they're going to trust you because you're not shutting them down. Um, but I, I think long term, it may be okay for them to just go back to what they were doing. You know, but again, if they're if they're enjoying consistency of training, they're going to probably self optimize, and that cadence is going to start to to creep up a little bit, uh, a little bit more. Yeah, I like that. Do you have a a given cadence you like? I know the 180 gets thrown around all the time, um, but if you're running like zone three or zone four for most folks, do we need to be 180 or? No, I mean, I think the faster you run, you're going to, you're going to start to adopt a slightly higher step rate. So where I think step rate manipulation is really important or salient to run or recreational distance runners is really when they're going out at conversation pace, where they're logging the crux of their, their, uh, their volume. Um, that's where I want to make sure that they're, they're working with a reasonable step rate, or if they're getting pushed back that we take them up five to 10% above preferred. Um, with the whole caveat, which still seems to be missed by a lot of people, that speed has to stay constant. Um, because by keeping speed constant, taking more steps per minute, you're effectively shortening one step length. And that's a key variable. Um, so, and I'll also keep in mind that if you're going to, I love doing the gait retraining on a treadmill in most instances. You have to be careful if someone has an Achilles tendinopathy because it biases a load towards the Achilles when you're on a treadmill. Um, but people are going to naturally adopt a slightly higher step rate on a treadmill. So you have to keep that in mind when you go to do your running analysis. And if you go to retrain, I'm not going to take someone up to that 10% above preferred. I'm going to probably stick closer around like 5% and, uh, and see if that brings about a meaningful change in their situation. Gosh, there's, there's a lot of really big things you just mentioned. I want to circle back and just, yeah. talk about it. I think the one thing that you had said um, that resonates a lot with me, because this is what I do, you know, for a living. It's one of the biggest things that I, I push to the students I work with, you know, um, and try to practice what I preach as much as possible is that injuries sideline people from doing something that's very healthy for them. Right. Mm -hmm. And it keeps people from doing what they love and it makes them less healthy. Right. Mm -hmm. Which creates a whole lot of problems over the course of time. As physical therapists, yeah, we want to try to get them back to their activities. But from that buy-in perspective, right, if you can get two birds with one stone and have them continuing to exercise, right, not stop exercising at all, that's tremendously powerful because most of the folks I see, they come to me because they want to keep doing the thing they want to do. And mm -hmm. when a physical therapist says, no, you can't, you have to stop it, that's a disconnect, right? Between what the individual wants and what the physical therapist wants. And maybe if there's a bone stress injury, say, you know, I'm sorry, but probably have to stop running. But for a lot of these issues, if we can make some of these transient changes, right? If we can change cadence for a little bit, have you run more comfortably, change a little less about your training program, that athlete continue to work towards their goals, right? And not kind of 
fall off this slippery slope of I'm hurt. I can't do the things that make me healthy anymore. I think that's an enormous win. A hundred percent. I mean, and it's also, it's just empowering for the athlete. You know, my, my goal is to put myself out of a job. You know, if I can teach people these simple, you know, strategies and tactics without being reductionist, you know, we're, they can start to navigate their own situation. Well, that's awesome because the whole game with folks like ourselves is to promote autonomy, you know, for runners not to realize like every time they they're dealing with some niggle or something they have to reach out to me. And I have certain runners that, you know, have contacted me. Like I think back about a year ago, this guy was like, you know, I sometimes, you know, I, I get a little bit of soreness if I'm doing like some, you know, faster work. I'm like, you don't need to see me, man. I'm like, you're good. You're telling me you get a little soreness after a, you know, hard run. I'm like, good. Sounds like you're doing some good training. Be sensible about what you're doing before and after that in terms of workouts. But um, we medicalize the shit out of runners and we shouldn't, you know, you're going to deal with some niggles. Most of the time, these are non-traumatic situations. Most of the time, it's probably sensitization of certain tissues or regions more than there is a true injury. But we also need to make sure there's not something like a bone stress injury, especially in a high risk site. I like that. So, Very good. So we got a, a ton of great information so far. I know we're uh, we're finishing up here. We're kind of coming in for landing. We're hitting the hour mark. But um, can I can I rapid fire a few questions at you here? Yeah, I thought we were gonna. I thought you were gonna take me down the rabbit hole of medial tibial stress syndrome. You know, I would like to, but I feel like this is going to be, it's a topic. Like you, I bet you could talk about this the entire day. Um, do you have any strategies for treating medial tibial stress syndrome that are quick? I know that's loaded. All of these questions are going to be the same way, by the way. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I think with that, it's getting the balance of, it's getting the balance of training and recovery, right. You know, um, and I think really making sure you know whether you're dealing with medial tibial stress syndrome, which it should be pretty straight away to diagnose. That's a paper by Winters. It was in BJSM, I think, 2018. There is, you should not need imaging for that. If someone has pain that's a little bit more diffuse, it's greater than five centimeters along that posterior medial tibial border. Um, <clears throat> that is probably not a tibial bone stress injury, especially if you don't see some of the, uh, the other risk factors that we would be concerned about. Um, so, you know, in those folks, I think it's managing expectations uh, to say, look, this could be a nine to 12 month deal. Let's be sensible. Let's take a conservative approach. Um, let's make sure we really discuss your training schedule. So we have a handle on that. Um, and, you know, doing some stuff to, to load the plantar flexors just because that's probably important from just tugging on the bone. Um, you know, but yeah, I, I think that people, again, that's a situation where folks get medicalized and most of the, when you look at the, the systematic reviews on basically what's effective from a treatment standpoint, pretty much nothing, you know, they looked at gate retraining, they look at, you know, all these other things and it's like, no, so uh, I see that the high school goals. Yeah, but I think that, you know, knowing what you're dealing with is very important there because if it is a tibial bone stress injury or chronic exertional compartment syndrome or a soleus strain and you're pretending like, oh, you have shin splints, well, you're probably not going to provide the best level of care. 
Yeah. And maybe that just means we haven't figured out the best treatment for shin splints. Not that nothing works. Right. So obviously, I mean, I had shin splints, I did track in college and I had shin splints the entire time. I just didn't know that it wasn't something everyone had. I just thought that your shins were supposed to hurt all the time and my shins don't hurt at all. You know, it's been, you know, 15 years, 20 years since I've had that same pain. Right. And I definitely don't run at the same level as I used to, but in terms of mileage, maybe close to it or more sometimes, and my shins never bother me. So something. Yeah. And, I think, and I think a lot of those interventions, it's like, the tricky thing we have, we have to look at all of this stuff, you know, it's like back to sleep, you know, when you, I, I spend so much time discussing people's training schedules. I'm like, show, I want to see exactly what you're doing in terms of a week. I want to know when you're running. I want to know how you approach, you know, are you doing a walking warm up, or are you just going right into a run? What shoes are you in? What surfaces you on? I get very granular because I want to make sure that we pick the low hanging fruit. And I think with people who have shin splints, um, or, you know, medial tibial stress syndrome, we still don't know exactly what, what the driving force is. I mean, is this, you know, a choral fasciopathy? Is this, uh, you know, uh, more of a, a bony injury that's maybe on that spectrum of a bone stress injury? Um, but yeah, I, I think that you have to look at all these things and it's like, to your point, and I know Mike always talks about, it's not that, that there's nothing that works. It's maybe we haven't figured it out or the way that we're approaching studying these interventions um, is not the, the best way we could be doing it. That makes sense for sure. All right. Uh, another question for you. Which injuries can you typically run through and which ones can you not run through pain wise? Yeah. So bone stress injuries cannot run through, you know, Rich Willie, Brent Edwards, Stu Warden did a nice paper on this JOSPT 2021. And they showed basically the, the pain monitoring scale, which Karin Silbernagel um, is associated with. It was originally done by Tomei in the late 90s, looking at, I believe, um, adolescents with patellofemoral pain. But if you look at that pain monitoring scale, it's like basically zero to four or five is, you know, you're okay to keep running so long as you don't have altered mechanics. With bone stress injuries, it's like zero to 0.5 out of 10. You know, so like you do not want to be running in the context of a bone stress injury just because you're going to prolong your recovery or you could develop a life altering injury if you're dealing with a high risk bone stress injury, such as a femoral neck, the anterior tibial cortex, the navicular. Um, so with tendons, I am cavalier as hell, man. I want to know how that how that tendon responds. Um, with the Achilles, there's no place to hide just because 50 percent of the, you know, the energy for distance running comes from below the knee or the plantar flexors. So um, with patellofemoral pain, I'm cool with people working through that. Um, you know, ITB to an extent. Um, look, I ran through a patellar tendinopathy for 16 months. And, uh, you know, so, so I think it's just looking how someone responds to get them to treat that as a yellow light time where you're trying to maintain consistency of training you're not trying to push the needle from a performance standpoint. Um, so yeah, it's really like soft tissue versus bony injuries. Um, you know, and I think certain if someone has a soleus strain or a gastroc tear, like you're going to have a hell of a time trying to run through those, especially early on and the recurrence rate. 
you also have to keep in mind is pretty darn high. Like I work with a lot of people. They like I've tweaked my calf like six to seven times in the past year. I'm like, Oh, probably got back too soon or you're incompletely rehabbed. I've done that. Yeah. That's and awesome. You're just like, here we go back like you feel like you're back at square one yeah it's like will this thing ever heal is this just the rest of my life am i just going to strain this every time i try to yeah that is a good point i think that those strain injuries in particular it's uh they kind of catch you all at once whereas let's say a tendinopathy you have some idea of when it may come on and if it does come on probably going to stay about the same you know in some cases it gets more severe but for some of those strain injuries, it's kind of like I feel nothing. And all of a sudden, I feel like I just tore something when those recurrences come and it's not predictable. So those are tough. Those are tricky. And the yeah. soleus, especially because, you know, in contrast to like a gastroc tear that you'd see in a jumping athlete, soleus strains may not have that acute onset. And that's why it requires a little bit more of an astute clinician, not claiming that I'm an astute clinician, but it you can miss these if you're saying like, Hey, was there an acute episode? And they're like, no, but like, you know, I felt a little bit of tightening, you know, at the end of the run, I went out to run the next day. It just wasn't happening. So that's I think if things warm up, that's a good sign too. And that's one of like the tendon tendencies that I teach. It's like, you know, you know, TWU tendons warm up, you know, TTT awesome. tendons take time. TLT tendons need load over time. You know, um, so I like it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and one more question for you. I think you were the person who first kind of got me into this, but uh, polarized training, do you mm -hmm. still like it? Do you push your athletes more towards the polarized training approach, in particular recreational athletes? So, mm -hmm. folks that are those general, I run too fast all the time because I like to run fast, and that's my identity. Uh, are you trying to educate them on a polarized program or um, have you changed your thought or did I not understand correctly and you don't like polarized training in the first place? Well, no, I, I think that, you know, I think that there, there are a couple, there's a great point counterpoint paper between um, Andy Jones's group and Steven Seiler's group. And, you know, I, I think that between pyramidal and, polarized training, the common denominator is most of the work is done in zone one. If we go back to zone one, two, and three. So pyramidal is zone one greater than zone two, greater than zone three. Polarized is zone one greater than zone three, greater than zone two. So you're doing more in that zone one and then a little bit more in the uh, zone three, which is really high end. I know with most of my training with the athletes that I work with, it definitely tends to, to follow more of a pyramidal type approach. Um, but, you know, I, uh, I think the main thing is when you're working with people, if they're going to be putting in a lot of volume, most of that's going to have to be sub threshold. Unless they're pressed for time, then maybe you could take a little bit more of a threshold approach. But I just always want to look at is a person tolerant of the workloads? And are they becoming more efficient? You know, so what could, what does that mean? Well, if they go out and do an hour run and they're able to hold a given pace at a lower heart rate, well, that's a sign of efficiency. That's awesome. So I just want to monitor people and saying, are they training consistently first and foremost? And are they becoming more efficient over time? You know, which is why it's important to give repeat workouts with every two weeks. Let's look at, you know, 
this type of workout. Let's look at, you know, your conversation pace run. Let's look at maybe the pace you anticipate holding, you know, for the, the marathon or the half marathon. Um, and then go back to the drawing board and saying, you know, are we putting them on the right path based on their goals? Yeah, I like that. That's great. Um, and I've seen some of that in the literature as well, too. So it seems like it's, they perform pretty similarly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the one beef I have with some of the polarized stuff is that I almost feel like I'm never training at my race pace. And then I don't know what the hell I'm supposed to do when I actually compete, you know? Um, and the other You're piece is that if you have very few hours in the week to run, then it's like, crap, I don't feel like I'm spending enough time at a fast pace to progress. It's like, I only have 10 minutes a week to run at a faster pace, right? This is how do I progress? So those are two things that I've kind of modified over the course of time for myself and some other athletes that are, I don't know, very little recreationally runners, right? A lot of the people I work with, they like running a little bit. And that Mm -hmm. means maybe two hours per week. So if you're looking at two hours and trying to split that up into workouts that actually push the needle from like a 5k, 10k perspective, uh, it's hard if 80% of that is super slow, you know? Yeah. And I think that what people forget a lot when they, when they tout the polarized training model or really any, if we go back to Pareto's principle, you know, Pareto's principle, he was an Italian economist. It's 20% of the work is what gives you 80% of the results. So it's when I go to write programs, which I'll do for like the next two and a half days, like that's all I do is I'm trying to say when I go to map it out, where are those hot sessions? So, you know, like for example, you know, maybe Tuesday I have someone do a run where, you know, maybe they incorporate like 10 by 30 second hard efforts on a 90 second jog recovery, you know, maybe on Friday, that would be a hot session. Maybe on Friday, I'm having them do, you know, three by three, four by four minute intervals where they're running at like a seven out of 10, you know, um, maybe I have them do a tempo run. And then maybe on Sunday, I have them do the long run, which you don't need a, a super high state of readiness, but it could leave you a little bit fatigued on the tail end. It's knowing where to put those hot sessions down. And then what's the other supplemental work that is going to really position you to get the most out of those hot sessions? Because I feel like everyone's like, rah, rah, 80% of your training should be subthreshold. Yeah, that's easy. I want to know when you're putting pen to paper, what are you putting down for those hot sessions? You know, and to your point, a lot of times people aren't rehearsing race pace. So, you know, with anyone, I was just on the phone with a woman who I coach and she's um, she's going to be racing tomorrow in uh, grandma's marathon. And, you know, for the past, you know, four to six weeks, we've been doing race pace rehearsals, you know, so like her last race pace rehearsal was about, 10 days ago, roughly, um, we had her go out and I had her run 75 minutes at her target marathon pace. And I want to see, I want to know what the temperature was. I want to monitor her heart rate and I want to monitor, monitor her pace, you know, and she's trying to qualify for Boston and she just basically pinned it right at her target marathon pace. Her heart rate really, maybe a little bit of drift towards the end, but it was also getting warmer. Um, I know she can go and run that marathon at her, uh, at the pace it will, will land her in Boston, you know, excluding any bizarre entities or a mind meltdown. I want to go tripper. 
Yeah. Live out in the Boston area. I'm just kidding. I won't do that. Yeah. I'll cheer on. Maybe I'll help. Yeah. And also, like, this is co- like I, I was telling her, I'm like, you have to surrender the outcome. Like, that's the other thing, you know, people get so fixated on that putting in that BQ time or Kona qualifying time. And uh, you just got to say, excuse my language, fuck it. You know, you've put in the work, the hay is in the barn. Now it's like, let's anchor your efforts. Let's make sure you have an accurate narrative going into this. You know, and with her, it's like she's at a good point in life. She has a business that's flowing. She has, you know, a run group that she's running. She has good, you know, good friendships. You know, she's traveling up to celebrate her, her grandma's 99th birthday. Like when, when life is flowing like this is when these performances happen. So long as she doesn't let that BQ time define her, you know, so. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to let you go, Chris, because I already used up a ton of your time. And I know it's a uh, it's great time, right, for me, but you probably need to do some other things. You're a busy person. So I want to say thank you. It, it's funny because the first time we did a podcast, I, you know, for listeners, I actually had a podcast maybe close to 10 years ago. And Chris was actually on as a guest at that point. Um, it blew my mind. There's so much awesome information, you know, and I was much more green at that at that time. But you know, when you talk to people in the interview, um, sometimes you don't come away with a ton of information, but for you, I always do. And it's really good to have you on. And I really appreciate it. You know, so thank you again, Chris, for joining us. Cool. Well, you know, you're someone I hold in high regard, man. And, uh, you're, you're doing great things in terms of just pushing the field in the right direction and, uh, you know, representing the profession as well as beyond the profession, you know? Um, so, and I just want to, I'm spoiled, man. You know, I, I, to say I had incredible mentors, um, you know, I was just emailing Lynn Snyder Mackler, you know, who op- literally opened the door to where I am today. And I reminded her of that, um, you know, a couple weeks ago, you know, Dr. Axe, who basically, you know, I, I was with him for three years, you know, when, in terms of like to say, I, I didn't go through a formal fellowship training. I went through the school of Dr. Axe for three years, working with him for 20 to 30 hours a week in the trenches with him. And then, um, Mal McHugh, who's a director of research at NISMAT and spending time in a clinic with people like Mike Mullaney, Tim Tyler, Carmen Chang was my manager back then. But, um, these are the folks that, and Steve Hoffman, who is OG man, in terms of like overhead athletes back in Pittsburgh, um, all of those folks are the people who have influenced me and, you know, um, and I'm just a pig and poop with this stuff, man. <laughs> you know, I just, I, I, when people say, when are you going to retire? I say, never, I, I'm going to be doing this stuff as long as I can. That's so, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks again, Chris. I really appreciate it. Always good to hang out with you. Uh, of course, Dan, thanks for having me on. It's flattering when people like you reach out to, to do a podcast with me. So I hope this is well received. And, you know, if people have questions, please feel free to reach out. Give me 24 hours to circle back because I can't keep up with the email. Jeez. So, but um, yeah, thanks, thanks awesome. again. Brother. Well, thank you, Chris. I appreciate it. That's it for today's episode. Thank you for joining us. And lastly, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your support. You truly allow me to do what I love for a living. If you are watching this on YouTube, please give me a thumbs up. I'd love to hear your comments and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. If you're watching the podcast or listening to the podcast version of this, 
please leave a positive rating and review. It helps me out tremendously. And lastly, if you want to go that last extra step and support me further, consider subscribing to Fitness Pain-Free Insiders. It's the logical next step. If you want to try to A, support me more, but also learn more about treatment of folks in the strength and fitness world, right? So I'll put a link in the show notes to Fitness Pain-Free Insiders, but if you head to fitnesspainfree.com, click on the programs link, and then click on Fitness Pain-Free Insiders online library, you can check it out. Lots of great learning. Thanks again, guys. I'll talk to you later.